I never once thought that maybe because they lived in America that their belief systems were changing too. What are my values? What do I really want to do? Time isn't running out. My journey gives me a different perspective on life. Everyone is like that. I kind of feel a little more fearless in chasing music all the way. I want you to learn that there's a difference between speaking poorly about your parents and speaking clearly about things that are affecting you. The fulfillment is not going to come without hard work. You know in your heart kind of who you are. It's the right choice. It's 100% the right choice. When you're they see like those questions. Hey, there's like a deeper meaning behind all of this. Like it's, it's how you were raised, what you were taught, what you were conditioned to believe. This is the Desi Condition. Hello, everyone. This is the Desi Condition. I'm Thonushri. And in today's episode, I wanted to talk about things that we wish we knew growing up. Uh, we all know that our culture is obsessed with marriage and having children and doesn't talk as much about relationships or how to navigate dating. And for some people, unfortunately, that means ending up in relationships that can actually be quite dangerous. Sometimes it can mean developing certain trauma bonds or um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and it's really difficult to detach from the other person, uh, to seek help, and to just decondition yourself so that you aren't blaming yourself for the things that happen, especially when in a lot of cases where women are the victims, the blame tends to be put on them. So today I'm talking to Samitha Johns from Samitha Shares, and she's here to talk about the conditioning that leads us to end up in these kinds of unhealthy relationships, uh, what she's learned from her experiences with dating and relationships and her subsequent journey, speaking to uh, lots of different audiences here in America and in India and about things that she wishes that she knew. Hi, everyone. Uh, Tanashri, thank you. So, And Desi Condition, thank you for having me on today. And- This is a topic that, of course, just from us getting to know one another that I am so passionate about. But to kind of give you a little, uh, I guess, summary of uh, background about me, um, I'll answer the traditional desi question, like, what do you do? How do you earn money? Because I feel like that's what people are traditionally most obsessed (laughs) with, (laughs) right? Uh, Because, I mean, how else can we size people up, right? Uh, So basically, I am a sharer of things, like Smitha shares, I two parts. One is I, I call it like the trifling, petty, not petty, trifling and fun part where I get to share things that I love. Um, some of like beauty products, health and wellness, like for example, this mental health gadget that I use. So that's how I pay my bills. Um, but that's the least part of who I am and what I actually care about. The second part of Smitha shares is, uh, really, um, writing, blogging, vlogging, doing stuff like this, uh, getting to tell my story and the stories of others. So I'm, you know, similarly passionate about what you're passionate about. Uh, and particularly as it relates to the South Asian experience, because I am probably a lot older than a lot of people who are listening today. I am uh, 40 years old and I um, definitely lived through a lot of things that I wish I could have spared myself. So now I would say that my primary purpose is to spare other young people from living through the same things that I lived through. And uh, as you know, I just returned from India. I was out there for four months. I was doing public speaking and volunteer work. And a lot of what I was doing was just telling my story, which I always say that most Indian people, when they're brought on, brought anywhere to do public speaking, it's because of their status, position, you know, wealth, um, and those kinds of things that our community reveres. But with me, I was given the opportunity. And even today, I'm being given the opportunity really because I made a lot of mistakes and I have a lot of regrets. So um, yeah, that that's me in a nutshell. Thank you for that intro. It's a really important mission. And I know you're um, probably older that you're definitely you're older than me You're older than like probably some of my listeners. But um, I feel like I can still relate in a lot of ways. Like, I mean, a lot of the reason that I started podcasting is because like, I have certain things that I guess I regret, like um, things that I wish I knew. And um, I would like to help the younger generation or even like people older than me who might be going through the same thing. Um, that I went through with like mental illness and stuff like that. Um, so this, I think this is really great and I'm, I'm excited for us to have this conversation. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Definitely. Um, so you started speaking about, um, well, what is it that you normally um, speak to these people about who are your, who are your audiences? So it depends, right? Like if I'm talking to a bunch of kids, I'll talk to them more about uh, just my mindset growing up, like the things that I was insidiously programmed 
uh, with and uh, by like my parents, community, society uh, that mm-hmm. I was wrongfully made to believe. Uh, for example, I really talk about, which is, it's not, I'm not the first person to talk about this. <laughs> There's tons of people talking about how toxic and harmful the concept of what other people think or what other people will say and how it's for me, um, I, which I can only speak to my own experience. It was kind of used as the primary foundational <laughs> principle of parenting. Um, it was, it yeah. was like used to motivate and supposed to inspire. I know that that was the intent was to motivate, inspire like good behavior and aspirational behavior, like to be more like other people. And I talk a lot about how um, harmful uh, comparison culture is and, and how I, I guess I, I guess lifelong, I just kind of, you know, experienced these things via my parents who did the, I always say they did the best they could at the level of consciousness that they were at. But I loved your lead into today's podcast. And it might be something that you talk about often, but like our culture is obsessed with um, kids one day Mm -hmm. when adults getting married and becoming parents, but we give them no resources to actually do so in a healthy and functional manner. And procreating, just because you, you know, procreate doesn't mean you're you're equipped to be parents. And my parents, I yeah. love them to death, uh, in a really dysfunctional, <laughs> probably trauma bonding type 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 of way, um, is uh they they were not emotionally like mature enough to be having kids, but yet they yet they did, you know. So um there was a lot of things that I internalized that were very very unfortunate. And uh, I feel like if I had internalized differently and believed differently about myself and, um, you know, what my path in this world could have been, I probably could have spared myself. Like what I'm doing now at age 40 and like living my truth and, and speaking like this to you or going to India, like it took me 20 years and I, I would not want for anyone to spend their life, um, you know, like 15 years in the wrong career. And then for Mm -hmm. me, like, you know, part of my story, which is why we're talking today. I really, unfortunately was so deeply ingrained in my wrong beliefs and this, like, um, the, our, all the toxic aspects of our culture that it took me severe trauma to like, begin this undoing of everything. And that was of course the, uh, brief three month dating relationship that, ended in me being held hostage, suffocated with a body pillow and so on and so forth. So, and I'm happy to talk about that, but that's kind of like, it depends on what I was to answer your question. It really depends on the audience. So if it's old, it's like your generation of women, I'll talk extensively about the DV thing and things that I really learned from that experience. And of course, if it's younger kids, I'll talk more about like uh, the impacts of parenting and the things that we decide about ourselves and, and those kinds of things. Are there any like huge differences that you notice in kind of the work that needs to be done in terms of deconditioning between kids versus um, adults, like young adults, people in their 20s or early 30s? You know, that is such an interesting question. And I'm almost disturbed to say no. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> because, uh, I mean, you and I met through these South Asian women's spaces that we're in on mm-hmm. like Facebook, right? And there's women's groups of 25,000 and 50,000. And I realized that even if it's like one to two generations above me, and then one to three generations after my generation, it's like all the same things. Really? Yeah, I feel as if like, sure, of course, you know, there's been some evolution and people will say like, you know, well, now we have representation, which is amazing, right? Representation matters. And some Mm -hmm. of our stories are being told by people like you and Mindy Kaling and, you know, her new show, whatever people think of her new show. It doesn't matter. Things do make a difference because one thing that I think is very different is that like my generation grew up feeling painfully alone. You know, um, even when I lived through my domestic violence situation, I had never known that anyone else ever lived through domestic violence, like except in movies. And now your generation and beyond, thankfully, because of the Internet and social media and these groups doesn't have to experience that. But I think the actual like work of like what needs to like uh, be unprogrammed or deprogrammed, it's it's the same. It's weird. (laughs) Interesting. Okay. Do you feel like a lot of that is based in uh, sexist uh, beliefs or is it kind of like that weird cycle of like reward and punishment that kids face with their parents Um, or maybe maybe kind of both? I think it's I think it's so many things in our culture, right? Like our culture is just drowning in. (laughs) 
toxic masculinity and you know the patriarchy is so still alive and well like it doesn't matter how many badass south asian women are doing their things uh we still for example like i know women who at 30 there are these highly successful surgeons and because they're not married it's like as if none of what they actually do for like their career and what they're passionate about matters you know um like i can say now present day like it took me a long time to to not constantly compare myself to my brother who's a physician married to a harvard mba grad who has a son and a daughter and to feel like my life has any worth and value when it doesn't measure up to like the desi metrics and i really think that like culturally it's the desi metrics and measures of what we deem is a good life that are probably like the most toxic thing um because they want they they kind of like compel everyone to feel like you have to live this really linear life that can only look like a certain way. And if you're not checking off checkmark, you know, criteria along the way, uh, then you're failing at life. Um, It's a very male centered life too. I I said something radical the other day to, I made, (laughs) (laughs) I made like this hella radical statement in which I said, you know, if I ever marry a guy, I'm not going to take his last name. And it was like the worst thing that I could have said. Oh my God, really? I've always said that. So I just, I feel feel like maybe, I mean, you and I are probably cut from very similar fabrics, which is why we're even talking today. But I've always (laughs) felt like I have been this like divergent, rebellious, misfit desi um, who has kind of always felt like I'm looking into like the fishbowl of our culture (laughs) and being like, I love aspects. My, in my soul and my being, I I know I'm like I'm thisy and want to be thisy in like every lifetime thereafter. If there was such a thing, but there's just so many parts where I'm like I don't identify with this and I don't agree. And I think my entire yeah. existence has been like this rebellion against it and this frustration. It's really been like I've had a really angsty life. That's what I can say for sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing I wanted to mention about the um, the male centric uh, life, I had actually done like a live share to my Facebook page the other day because my mom, for example, her entire life, my mom suffered all these things. My mom suffered things that like when I, um, I've just learned some of them recently and I'm like, how did, why did you stay? Like, why didn't you do that? You know, like they're the kind of things that I'm like, my mom had four degrees. She was absolutely brilliant. She at 18 years old was teaching 20 year olds. Uh, she, so she, and she was the primary breadwinner in my parents' relationship for the first eight years as my dad completed like all his higher education. And I'm like, man, why did you, why did you tolerate this? Um, but I just feel like everything in our culture, especially towards women, like we're taught, I was actively taught that women go sanacting and women have to tolerate and compromise Mm -hmm. and settle. And my mom, like, love her to death. Again, I'm going to have to keep saying that because people seem to get really mad at me when I speak about my parents. Like, I'm again betraying like the social contract that we're not supposed to do that. Um, But you know that that's part of the contract, right? (laughs) And I've literally had message me being like how could you like how could you betray your family like this and I'm like if I don't talk about it who will <laughs> you know um yeah 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 but yeah, yeah there's a difference between like talking shit about your parents and just talking about things that are bothering you right and and I just feel like I can't like live a lie anymore you know so much of our culture demands us to like portray an image and to protect yeah. the family but I'm like in that I just think so many young people they get lost and they like they just disappear um, I think and- you're wanting. I think feeling like you can't talk openly about things that you're, things that you feel around your family, or the, just the way you feel is like regarding your family is like kind of a hallmark of an abusive relationship. It's like when you're in an abusive relationship and you don't want to talk badly about that person to anyone else, right? Because you're thinking like, I don't want this person to think that this is like this is a bad partner for me, or I don't want them to think less of that person. Um, That's like key sign of abusive relationship behavior. You're so, so right. And I love the way that you said it because it absolutely is. And we are actively taught. Like I know that there would be times in my family where my parents are having like this, you know, world war 4,200 and Mm -hmm. it's like, everything is imploding and and it's so nasty and then we have guests over in an hour and we put on our smiles and we act like everything is okay and um yeah. and so i learned how to do that in my own life and i recently wrote a blog um that was called uh, dear desi's dual lives master actors because i feel like if you were to really know what was happening behind closed doors in most south asians lives that nearly everybody is taking part in this 
that dual life master and and is a master actor. Yeah, actually, you bring up a good point about like world wars happening inside the homes. I think we also don't know how to resolve conflict. We don't see on we we don't see healthy relationships a lot of times. We also don't know how to resolve conflict. Like I see a lot of I versus you language in like parents fighting all the time. When you, when you, when you're constantly shouting you at someone, it's like, you're not expect accepting responsibility for your own feelings and your own actions. Whereas if you're saying I, which I never see people say, or like hear about obviously, but like, um, but I wish Desi culture was more pro-divorce. Absolutely. Honestly, I'm, I've never said this out loud before. And I'll probably I mean, my parents have never beat me, but they might start. (laughs) But I remember at 14 years old, I begged my parents to get a divorce. And imagine, you know, I mean, like, I I did, I I begged them. And um, like, the the share that I had recently done on Mother's Day um, was about how like my mom, she, she, her entire personal identity comes from her martyrdom, martyrdom, her victim story. (laughs) Like she doesn't know how to relate to anyone outside of her suffering. And it's, it's really disturbing to be quite honest. Yeah, it is. I think it's just a symptom of, uh, I mean, a lot of things, but a lot of it is just like bad family relationships. And there's like, I could talk about the history of like why uh, we've developed as Indians bad relationships. I've talked about in a previous episode, I talked about like uh, codependency and like some, in some ways it can come from colonialism and how we live in intergenerational families a lot of times. And so that can contribute to it. Um, But ultimately like it's still up to us. It doesn't matter who did what to us. It's still kind of up to us to, dismantle these things and really like learn how to fight with each other we don't know how to fight with each other we just know how to fight at each other it's almost like fighting ourselves but like at each other yeah yeah out loud and with the intent to win it's never to understand or to to hear someone's actual point of view and how they might feel uh yeah (laughs) So yeah, and there's there's just so many things that contribute. Like to go back to your, I guess your original question, it's just so multi layered and complicated. Yeah, it is. Let's go back to um, you. <laughs> you are the topic of this conversation. Um, that you said that you've been talking. You are so. I don't know how old you are, but you are incredibly profound. <laughs> and I'm going to go back and listen to all your podcasts. So. <laughs> oh my god, thank you. <laughs> well, I've, I've learned some. I've learned some hot words from mental health podcasting, like trauma bonding, and you know, CPTSD. No, and I, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, I get smarter every day because I'm podcasting. It's kind of. Um, but what was I going to say? Um, Right. I was going to ask you how you were in India for a few months. Uh, So how did that go? And who were you speaking with? So India was great. So um, my primary audiences there uh, were young children, like as young as I think eight, and then um, girls up to like 18 and 20. So college students. Uh, And basically, I was talking about, um, I, I always led with the I'm here today because I am someone who, in spite of all the people who are typically asked to have an audience with you, I, on the contrary, have made many mistakes and have a lot of regrets. And so then I would kind of talk about like how I, like, let's say one thing I was so, I think in our culture, like we're so addicted and I think everyone wants to get praised by their parents, but I feel like South Asians is this next level thing. Um, And I like existed to be validated by my parents. And, and I was never like, my parents never kind of taught me resiliency. Like they never taught me for like bad times to happen or that I'm not going to be good at everything. So I had such a bizarre relationship with like success and failure. Like if I ever tried something and everyone wasn't immediately clapping for me at first go, (laughs) then I was Mm -hmm. like, this this sucks and this is stupid and I'm just going to quit. And so I, um, you know, I talked, I talked about stuff like that. I talked about how I was actively compared to other people. So then my entire like internal monologue that I had with myself for the next 30 years after that, you know, I remember being compared as little as when I was like seven years old, um, to my neighbor who I really did not like. And <laughs> she wasn't a good person, even at seven years old, she wasn't like a nice, <laughs> nice young girl, but I was compared to her because she was always like, three percent smarter than I was, you know, so like she was okay. she was the goal. And um then I just, you know, whereas when I was in my formative years, it was my mom actively comparing me, then it just became me 
actively always comparing myself, you know, and I still do it even to present day, like even as much as I've done public speaking people, I get messages all the time about how I shared something that made a difference. But even right now I could literally, if I, if I go there, I could think, oh my God, Thunder like listen to how smart she is. Listen to how she speaks and everything she knows. Like, why am I even bothering? Like, I should probably just shut down, shut down my blog. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Like, that's like, that's the way I program. So we talked about stuff like that. Um, and uh, just like about how, and I'm not the first person who's ever said this, but like how our body is our only home. And I, I only related to my body from an aesthetics perspective, because again, I feel like South Asians are obsessed with appearances. <laughs> Everything is about Ooh, yeah. appearances. And one of the things that like, and I've just started writing about this, but I think one of the biggest hindrances to my life, and this is going to, I swear to God, I'm not saying this from a... Um, an arrogant perspective, nor am I full of myself. I wish I was full of myself. Honestly, I wish I had lived life with more ego because I actually Mm -hmm. spent most of my life thinking that I was ugly and fat. And Mm -hmm. when I look back at myself, I'm like, Oh my God, I was actually like a really beautiful child. I'm, you know, and, and, but I I had no awareness of this because we just always talked about how wonderful other people were. So I I just didn't know how to perceive myself in this world where everything was about sizing myself against other people. Wow. That's heavy. And and you know what's so sad actually? It's like I like sometimes feel like I the the biggest harm to my life was that I was like smart by uh traditional measures as in like I got like hundreds or inorganic chemistry in college. I was Dean's List Honor Society president of my class. Like I succeeded very easily with very little effort. And I was so like personally enrolled that success looked like those things. Um, But there was like no concept of like doing things that were challenging or (laughs) meaningful or anything. So like, I wish that like, I could have, I wish I could have go back in time and like flunk my first semester of college or something versus getting a 3.8. Like, I feel like that would have served my life far better than doing well. And I also feel like I, I, I got to coast a lot on the coaching that my mom gave me about appearances. Like I was, I was always someone who was very good. It wasn't this like malicious sociopathic thing, but I was good at like being appealing to people. Um, so I just got to like coast through most of life. Like I got my first job because I was like charming and sweet and funny and endearing. And I'm, I'm assuming some people found me to be aesthetically pleasing in pharmaceutical sales. And, and I just like rode that wave, but like, I never had to confront like what I actually think were my natural gifts. And, and I didn't, I didn't like even become aware of them again until post-trauma. That was going to be my next question. Uh, what, what changed? Why did you start realizing and start questioning these things? So I, you know, I hate to say this and people say that I'm very like cruel to myself. I swear that like when I'm, I, I'm one of those people who talks about things in a very matter of fact way. So when I say that I was like trifling or basic as AF, it's, it's not like, I'm not sitting here like in this deep despair and horizontal. It's more just like, I need to say it in that manner because I wish like someone had said it to me um, with all their love and kindness. I wish someone had like real talked to me at any juncture in my life ever, including friends. Like I just had all surface level, good time friends, no one challenging me to like level up to like what I was capable of, you know? Um, and so I just lived this like rinse repeat life. I hated pharmaceutical sales. Like I hated every single, and it wasn't, you know how like there's like the, the active hate where you're like, Oh God, I hate this person. I hate this job. It wasn't like this. It was what I call the quiet suffering. I like painfully unaware to unaware of it, but I was just going through the motions, you know, and (laughs) I showed up and I didn't, I knew that I didn't like pharmaceutical sales. I knew that I got this like pit, pit, uh, terrible feeling in the pit of my stomach every morning when I woke up, but I did it begrudgingly. And I succeeded annoyingly again. Like I remember when, um, I'm, I'm, I'm forwarding ahead a little bit, but post-trauma, I worked like two hours a day and I still made like a $40,000 bonus. <laughs> and so because I could coast, I just, I just did. So I, um, you know, that that quote that Albert Einstein is attributed with the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting different results. That was my life. I'm a big believer in the universe, like not as much, I'm not really a spiritual, I'm sorry, I'm not a God, religious person, but I'm a very spiritual person. So I believe that like the universe showed up in my life again and again to like, present me multiple signs. Like when I was, when I went to Boston university, the number two physical therapy program in the country and got so much praise from my parents. Um, I didn't, again, I just, 
arbitrarily did well with very little effort. And then my first semester of my clinical year, my senior year, I started fainting every time I would hear a story of someone breaking their bones. Um, And it was my body like giving me these very clear signs that like, hey, oh, Smita, (laughs) Uh, Smita like Rita, this is not for you. And I, you know, thankfully, that was the first time in my entire life I actually listened to what my body was telling me, what my gut instinct was telling me. And I asserted some agency in my life and like defied my parents. But unfortunately, as a South Asian, I, because I was actively told like, like I have people in our community still to present day who think that because I didn't finish physical therapy, I failed physical therapy, even though, again, I was like Dean's List, president of my class and all these things. Um, but just because I like made a different decision. And I remember it was such it's it's been like I graduated in 2000. So let's say it's been 20 years and it is still like a pain point with my mom. Like it's her biggest sadness about my life. And because it was such a sadness for her, it became this thing that I internalized as a failing. But let's say I had someone like a Thanushree or a Smita at 40 who could have like told Smita of 20 that like, nah, girl, like this is like, this is like in your favor. This is awesome. You didn't spend like another uh, $60,000 finishing your master's. <laughs> you saved a lot of time. You saved a lot of money. Mm-hmm. Like let's see what you're actually good at and passionate about, blah, blah, blah. That didn't happen. So I got into pharmaceutical sales and the universe showed up again. And it started in 2009 uh, when I was 30 (laughs) and I just turned 30 and I actually started, I got laid off. This is going to sound so absurd because South Asian people actually don't believe this. They think that I got fired, but I have the paper, I have the receipts to prove it. I got laid off five times in three years. Wow. And yeah. And it's like, again, 10 years ago was a weird time though. It was like, like the stocks crashed, whatever. Right. And, and, but even then it's like, if you, I don't know. I feel like this, these don't do this to one another and they don't do this, do this to themselves. Like we're so reactionary. At least I feel like my family was very reactionary. Like, uh, and it's always about like fixing a situation. It's never about being introspective or reflective or taking pause. Um, which again, 10 years ago, like what I wouldn't have done, like, let's say I, I could never go back in time to like impact seven-year-old Smita, but gosh, I wish I could have like go back in time and still had a chat with 30-year-old Smita, you know, like, hey, like, but let's take this first layoff, the first of five as a blessing. Like, do you even like what you do? No, I don't. I don't like it at all. Like, what else could you be doing? You know, like, these are conversations that nobody ever had with me because even my brother, who's very, I love him to death, but he's definitely a traditional path follower and like a security seeker. Um, so his thing, everyone's thing was like, just find the next job. And that's what I did. And then finally, like, because I believe <laughs> the universe was like, dad, girl, you are so dense. You were like purposely obtuse and like, you're just not going to get it. So then in 2012, it showed up with this person, this South Asian attorney who looked like the, in every regard, the perfect man. Um, he had him show up in my life and literally made me live through a lifetime horror story uh, in a very short acute time period. And it turned my life on its entire head. And, and it's one of those things that now, of course, like, I think a lot of times we have to narrate a certain story that makes like healing from trauma possible, you know, like, in order for us to reconcile all the things we suffer, like, I think sometimes purposely or, or, or just like, it just happens where you've hashed it out so many times. So I have like my silver lining story, but I would obviously never go back in time and be like, Oh, I'm so glad this happened to me. You know, like I'm really not because there was a lot of things in my life like that um, are really sad because of, because that all happened to me. But um, I also, yeah, in so many ways believe that I would have just kept going through the rinse repeat motions of life still had like, surrounded myself by really trifling surface level people, um, and, and never gotten to step into like my own, which I'm getting to do now. So, um, yeah, uh, it took, it took that <laughs> for, for things to change, unfortunately. Wow. Um, yeah. So you went through this life-changing experience. What was the immediate aftermath of that? Like, Uh, So just to kind of give like a little bit more background, I had met this person through friends and he was, you know, as South Asians, we, we, we give a lot of credit to people who have like position and status and are, you know, presidents of South Asian bar associations and all those things, you know what I mean? And um, he fit like every check card, check mark criteria (laughs) that, that I thought one would have, but I also wasn't the kind of person who was like, uh, Oh, 
I meet someone and I'm imagining the rest of my life with them. That wasn't the case necessarily, but, um, I, the, the whole situation ended in what I said, like, you know, the, the being held hostage, being suffocated long story, too long of a story to tell you how I got out. Um, but then I eventually filed an emergency order of protection, uh, spent seven months in court with the same POC, uh, female judge in the first case against him from another South Asian woman. I had a three inch binder of evidence. I, lost my case. Um, the, the judge literally victim blamed me left and right, uh, telling me all the reasons why my, why my story was essentially a lie. Uh, I lost most of my friends prior to that. I like pretty much nearly every single one of my friends who was of course, mostly South Asian, uh, actually only South Asian. <laughs> I lost all, almost all of my friends, including a friend of 29 years at that time. And I was persecuted by the community for speaking out about what happened to me, which I, you know, I, can say like, I can, I can, I, I guess I can give myself props for like doing what I did back in 2012, like five years before me too, you know? Um, but the aftermath was extreme PTSD and depression. Like people, when they hear the story, they get so fixated on the lifetime horror movie part, but it was the betrayal of friends, the betrayal of the judge, um, which was of course, then it's like a betrayal of everything you think is like, like right and wrong, you know? Um, I don't know where you, we don't have to get into politics, but a lot of people right now with the current political climate, it's a very hard to reconcile everything that's happening based on our previous interpretation of the world. Um, so I experienced that in like a very acute and dramatic way. Uh, and then betrayal of the community. Like I always thought of myself, I mean, people, some people used to call me like Miss India because I was so like, I hate this word now, but popular. And I was a person that knew everybody was part of every single group. And then this same community that I thought that I had like built and poured into betrayed me in such a significant way. So I just didn't even know how to like, I, um, like the, the trauma part of it, the physical trauma part of it was like the smallest drop in the ocean of like the real trauma. Um, and unfortunately, like nobody knew how to deal with it in my family. <laughs> like, uh, and I felt really alone and let's see, four years ago in this exact season, you would have found me, um, like out on like empty highways in the middle of the night. And I would just close my eyes while I was driving. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I always say that worse than hate is indifference. And I had that towards myself. Um, uh, and yeah, I just, I really suffered. I like piled on 40 pounds in two years. I used to not eat at all, but then eat $16 of Taco Bell in one sitting. And as South Asians who love Taco Bell, like, you know, that's a lot of food. That's a lot of food. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it was, it was bad and it was really, really hard to get out of. Yeah. Um, everything you describe makes it feel like your life kind of just fell apart, but looking at you now and looking at everything that you're doing, it feels like as an outsider, of course, I'm saying this, but it feels like your life actually came together. Right. Oh, I love the way you just said that. <laughs> no, I think that's so that's a perfect way of saying it because I think that a lot of times, unfortunately, whereas I don't think anyone should seek out trauma, um, but I think a lot of times we are so comfortable in our lives, in our existing, right? Most of us just exist through most of life, right? Um, and we don't like True. change. And, um, and unfortunately in a lot of instances, like for some people for their health, it could be like a heart attack. And for some people for their miserable, unbeknownst to them existence, it's a trauma. And that was the case, uh, that was definitely the case for me. And, but it was, it is now a coming together, but there's like this, there's this feeling of sadness that like, I'm, you know, I'm past the depression. I'm past the PTSD. I've really done like the deep work to like become, whole and complete and, and get to a place of healing. Um, and a lot of that, like my greatest healing has come from sharing my story and making it feel like it was all for something, you know, like, uh, that it mattered. Mm -hmm. and that's why you've seen me in these South Asian women's groups where I'm such an active voice because I'm like, there's a part of me. And I know that I, I'm sure there's like some psychological complex that I have. <laughs> that's probably not even a good one. I don't know, <laughs> but like, it's like, I, I feel like kind of like this thing where I'm like, Oh my God, like, I just want to save people from, from what I had to endure. Um, but then well, I actually unfollowed all of the groups recently because um, I realized that it was kind of like almost like a, a distract, not a distraction. That's not the right word. Like I'm trying to think what the word is. Like I'm dealing with other people's stuff and still not dealing with like the things that I want. I, okay. I 
Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, and it makes me feel like I'm, I'm doing something meaningful and purposeful, but like, I'm still not doing the most meaningful and purposeful part of what I think that I'm supposed to do, which is like complete the actual like books that I'm trying to write or do the blogs or do the sharing in my own personal space versus trying to like save every young South Asian woman on a one by one basis. Okay. Yeah. 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 Makes sense. You need to funnel kind of, um, Okay, I want to backtrack a little bit about um, you were talking about how friends, family weren't necessarily supportive. Um, why do you think they didn't stick around? And is it kind of a symptom of like us not knowing how to deal with um, emotions and relationships, just kind of the way that we're conditioned? And obviously, I think that they the simple answer is that like they probably did that out of their own self-preservation. But um, two-parter question, do you think they regret that? And do you blame them? now, like years later? Now I don't blame them. Now I feel like I've gotten to that place where I can also, the same way I can say to my, as my parents, like those people also did the best they could at the level of consciousness that they were at. Had it been like post me too, I guarantee everything would have been different because back then Mm -hmm. it was like this trailblazing, not in a good way. I did not think I was a trailblazer. I feel like I had no choice but to share what I had to share um, because I found out that this person had so many victims before me, like six or seven. um, And I was just pissed at that time. I was so angry that like no woman who knew many knew that I was dating him. Not one person thought to spare me from him. You know, it's not, and least of all, spare me, but spare my family, you know, um, from what they had to live through. That's the part that like is always going to be hurtful that my parents had to endure this horrible, terrible thing. Um, and do, do I believe that they regret it? I know that some of them do because one of them reached out to me. I had, I had no, um, this was actually a best friend of mine at that time. We'd been friends for like at least five years. And I had, I had to subpoena her to testify for me. And, and like, I can just say that in that year of 2012 to when seven months forward, I lost my case. It was like every day was a trauma and some were micro, but like subpoenaing your best friend, that's like a major trauma. (laughs) And it feels like such a betrayal. But I do believe like what you said, I just think that South Asians, like when I would tell the story to my non-South Asian friends, you would see them have such a visceral reaction of like rage. Like we're like, I would, they're like, if it were my sister, you know, he'd be, he'd be in the floor six feet, he'd be in the ground six feet under, blah, blah, blah. And when you would tell South Asians the same story, they would get so like, it would be almost like mesmerizing to them. Like they were watching a Bollywood movie, um, but they didn't, didn't really like tap into it. You know what I mean? Like they didn't want to get into the depths of it because it made them very uncomfortable. Uh, And I think our culture, and it's probably a thing when you're a population of 1.3 billion people, that self-preservation is the primary goal. And um, there was people who wanted to preserve like their social status uh, because of who my ex was. And a lot of things like what we see, you know, what we saw um, with more recent famous perpetrators who have come out like women are blamed for what happens to them but you take that like general society let's say that's like a that's like a level 10 and in south asian culture it's a level 100 right um and people found it more plausible that two south asian women within one year's time that they were crazy and that 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 there was some benefit to them in making this whole thing up then they were apt to believe that one um respectable powerful South Asian man could do these things. You know what I mean? And, um, and I think that like my mom always told me this my whole life. And I always tell her that she's cursed my life, like actively, like she always, she said this to me growing up. And even now she says like, no one's your real friend, like real and that people are just your good times friends. And when you actually live through something, no one will be there with you. And I was like, damn, like, (laughs) like, but she said that to me a lot during life. And then it makes me mad that she was like, at least in my situation, she, she proved to be right. You know, no one, uh, nearly no one who was in my life previously stood with me. And I just had like an influx of people, probably like, let's say someone like you who saw my story and then became, um, you know, like an ally to me. Uh, and then your, your first thing was, um, do, so do I think that they regret, uh, yeah, I, I imagine some people do. Um, and, I'm sure they were hurt by it. They were probably, a lot of people were also angry at me because even though I didn't name names, I told the story of having to subpoena my best friend and losing my best friend of 29 years. So I became like the villain, you know, I became the person who was making them look bad. And a lot of people cared about that above all else. And I don't remember the second part of your question. It was, no, you answered both parts of it. (laughs) 
the second part of it was whether or not you blame them. And you said that they were just kind of doing the best given what they were given, which makes a lot of sense. I think um, you said something interesting before about how um, you know your friends are just for fun. They're not really there if something happens. I think that I can't speak for people in India, but I think that happens a lot here with like um, parents. They'll like come here and um, they find their community. They're like whatever their community and they become friends with whoever is there. And it's like more the friendship has a purpose. It's not just friendship for the sake of friendship it's more like friendship for the sake of preserving culture or like preserving that feeling of like feeling like you're at home again and so that's kind of and I I don't think that's true for a lot of people but I think that it can be true for a lot of people that friendships are just more for fun it's more like who laughs with you um, or or who, who laughs like at your jokes you know more than um who like cries with you. And if that's the friendships that we see in our parents, then um, yeah, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we tend to seek as well. Well, and it's very interesting that you say that because when I look at my parents' lives and it's so, I mean, it took me so long to become like woke to my own life and what I grew up with uh, far too late as far as I'm concerned. And I know that obviously better late than never. And everyone will say that it happened when it was supposed to happen, which is you know a nice way of putting positive spin, but I feel like it was too late. But when I look back at my parents' lives and like their friendships, like there was, my parents didn't have a friend that they could just be like completely raw and vulnerable and exposed and say like, this is the shit I'm living through at home, or this is happening with my husband. And I mean, my mom actively programmed me with stuff, even like into my, when I was a young person, like let's say my twenties, she would say like one day when you have a husband, don't ever tell him anything about what happens in our family because one day he'll use it against you. So when you're, you know, programmed with that stuff and, and (laughs) it, it becomes like this massive mistrust. So like you're not only acting being like a living a dual life and a master actor to like the greater community, you even end up doing it to the people who are supposed to be there for you. I feel like Indians are like trauma bonded with the British because they're like still constantly like seeking approval and like (laughs) like, trauma bonded with like the idea of approval. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And and that's like everything. Like I, I posted this like funny thing. I have to like put it into a meme because I thought it was so clever. It was like, you know, if your South Asian parent can't brag about what you did, did you even do it? (laughs) It's like if a bear shits in the woods, that's funny. I like that. (laughs) Um, We talked about how, you know, parents don't necessarily have good friendships. How do you think um, the things that you learned from your mom about relationships affected the relationships that you ended up choosing in life, whether it's romantic or platonic or anything else? That is a great question because I think that in a really insidious manner that I would never have been able to be consciously aware of or articulate until way, way after looking back in hindsight, it impacted me so much. I think um, I, I didn't realize this, but like, I, again, like I, I call myself basic and trifling because I was so deeply enrolled into the idea of like what other people thought of me, you know? And, um, I had a lot of friends who I surrounded myself with. And I don't, again, these weren't conscious choices where I was like, Oh, I want to be friends with the popular person, or I want to be friends with this, but I definitely got a lot of personal validation from, being friends with the popular person, people or person, and then being perceived as a popular person, you know, like Miss Congeniality, who everyone liked, like that became my identity. And uh, that was one thing that I, I definitely saw my mom, my mom got so much social validation just from how she was perceived, right? So, and it was all a perception because she was, she's one of the most masterful and it's, I, I don't consider it malicious, but she's a masterful actress, you know, portraying, portraying a life that is not her reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course, when it came to friendships, like it was more just, it was weird because I like, I am very good at female bonding. Like it's my favorite thing. I relate to women so deeply. Um, and I felt like I had that one lifelong best friend my entire life, but it was odd because I feel like my mom and I've, I've talked to some other South Asian women who feel this way. I feel like my mom resented my 
friendships my entire life. Like, not that she was actively trying to sabotage them, but maybe she was like by saying things like, you can't trust anyone. Like everyone's going to betray you. Everyone's going to leave you, you know, like, um, and I, I know that she said those things in an effort to try to, I guess, spare me from some suffering that she must have endured from other people. But mm-hmm. it really in so many ways just jacked me up because I didn't know how to like properly relate to people what and how to how to even gauge if someone was trustworthy or if someone was worthy of like knowing my really vulnerable raw stuff, you know? Um and all of my friends pre 2012 didn't know my real vulnerable raw stuff. Like, you know, more than my lifelong best friend of 29 years in this 53 minute conversation or whatever we're at. <laughs> um, I know it's not going to be aired, but like, it, it, you know more about me than they ever knew about me, you know? So I just didn't know how to, how to relate to people and, and trust those kinds of relationships. When it came to my relationship with men, uh, that was where the impact was the absolute worst because my mom was so, one, she was so obsessed with my physical image all like my life. She was, I remember when I was 21 years old, my mom asked me if I was pregnant. And I am at that point, I was probably 40 pounds, 50 pounds less than what I am right now. (laughs) And yeah, and it was just like such a horrifying thing. Like, but she always would be very critical and critique me of like, you know, like my hair and my makeup and all these things. So she made me someone who was very obsessed with my physical appearance. And I would say that I probably spent like a greater part of my entire life uh, channeling energy into this really uh, unfortunate thing. And so when it came to my relationships with men, I was constantly seeking like validation, um, not about my self-worth as a person, but like how pretty I am or how beautiful they, how attractive I was to them. Uh, And I really feel that I never, I've never, you know, I'm 40 years old and I can say that I've probably, not probably, I've definitely never been actually like in love. I've never been in a healthy relationship um, that I can look back with it with any like real fondness because in every single one of those relationships um and it's actually crazy the most dysfunctional relationship in my life was not the one in which I was held hostage and suffocated it was the one immediately following that which was like a rebound relationship and um and it wasn't this thing where like abuse necessarily happened and actually abuse did not happen at all with this person I just like existed in this relationship trying to be what this person like wanted me to be and was not remotely myself but I was like so desperate to be married by a certain age have kids by a certain age and all of my choices my mid my mid-20s to early 30s all of my choices when it came to men were born out of fear and uh very very important point I was so so desperate like to just check off that checkbox that I would um, I wasn't willing to like cut people out of my life when, when I felt like I should be able to make it work with them. And I was definitely that like should be able to make it work person. So we talk a lot about people on the other side of people who like receive abuse or people who just, um, you know, receive whatever it is that whatever coping it is that we have to do um, to deal with an unhealthy relationship. What do you think makes an abuser? Oh, uh, what I think makes an abuser one, I think uh, generational generations of abusers. I think abusers teach other abusers to do the same. Um, and uh, gosh, it's a it's an important question. It's almost like a difficult question for me to answer because, like, there is the case of my ex, the one who did uh, hold me hostage, where I think he was like a true sociopath. So that would be like a outside of your, I guess, quote unquote, traditional abuser. Um, but abuse is so rampant in our, in our culture and it, and the, I'm not going to answer your question properly. I'm just, (laughs) my apologies for that, but I think abuse Mm -hmm. is so rampant in our culture that like, it's so hard not to confuse it with love. And that's probably like, my biggest thing is, um, let's say when I talk about my mom, I talk about all her good intentions. I talk about loving her to death, right? Because as a South Asian, you can't, you're not allowed to think that I don't love my mom and that I'm a bad daughter or that my mom was a bad mom. (laughs) But um, so many things that she said to me, like if I probably said them to a psychologist, they probably call it emotional abuse, but I can't call it that, you know, like 
I can't call it psychological abuse or emotional abuse or mental abuse. I call it love. I call it her loving me and her having my best interest in mind. And I'm not the only one. We know you and I are in these groups together where there's thousands of of South Asian women who are literally teaching other South Asian women how to tolerate the abuses of their parents. That's yeah, I've seen that kind of stuff. And I think it's absurd. I think um, I honestly, I kind of think that in a lot of ways, copers and abusers come from the same place. I think it just comes from this like diminishing behavior that we receive from parents like over time, and that it's being like engraved into us. And like, some of us just react in different ways. Like, um, I think you're someone who seemed to just like, um, you know, you were on the receiving end of it. So you were more of a coper, whereas like, some people end up just internalizing that and then externalizing it towards other people right. thinking that like, okay, well, this is how people act. So this is how I also am going to act. Um, I think your case may be a little bit different um, because this guy was like a sociopath and probably had signs of being a sociopath. But I think like the, the rampant abuse in the culture that we're talking about is more, um, you know, what I just said, it comes from this like gaslighting. No, and gaslighting, it's so bonkers to me. Like when I, I read this article by Yashar Ali, um, it was like in Huff Post in 2012 after like in the wake of my situation and it blew my, my, my mind. Um, because I didn't even know what gaslighting was until I was 32 years old. And I'm like, wow, like this is not just my entire upbringing. It's our entire culture and our, our, culture. It's like pervasive with invalidating people's feelings. Like I remember even in India just recently, and I'm, I love my, I stay with, with my elder cousin, who's uh, my cousin brother, but he's like a dad. He's 20 years older than me. And it, this is not his fault. So if, if he's listening to this, I hope he knows I'm not upset at him at all, but it's, it's common because he's not the only one. Like I, in the weeks le- leading up to my having to leave India, because I had only booked a one-way flight there and I was planning on not like being there for the rest of my life, but being there for a long time. I had no expectation of leaving. And so I had been feeling good, but then all of a sudden I wasn't feeling good. And I, I texted my entire family, like the three people who are in that one household. And I said, I'm having like severe anxiety and depression right now. And I don't know if I need to be back on medication or what I need to do. And like, no one even replied. (laughs) And then when I said it, I like reiterated it when I ended up being in person with them. And um, like the thing that I was told was to just think positive and just someone actually told me like, just smile. And it's like, okay. <laughs> and, yeah. but, and then you pray more. Yes, exactly. And, and you watch, like, I, that's how my mom dealt with her stuff. Like when my mom experienced traumas, she just put on a smile and then kept on going. And, um, she never, like, even to present day, if I ever said something like about therapy or, mentioned like couples counseling with my parents, like they're so like offended by the notion because they don't even think mental health stuff is real. Like my mom, when I was like in the deepest, darkest part of my depression told me that I was lazy and did not want to do hard work. Yeah. But coping does not mean that you're not suffering. Right. Uh, no, of course. And I think the, the kind of like the best worst part of my life, um, it's the best because like, you know how, um, I unfortunately, unfortunately, I never had any awkwardness growing up. Like you could never have looked at my external life and thought that this is a girl who's like, has anything going on at home. Like I was so bubbly and so happy. I, I basically coped by being consumed with friends in school. And I was so in that regard, well-adjusted, socially well-liked, assertive, bold. Like there wasn't any part of my personality where you would ever think that anything that I was affected by anything. Um, and because I also performed really well, you know, like I was like the exceptional Bollywood dancer and, uh, all the aunties loved me and I did really well in school. So all like, it would have been better for me if all of the, um, performance measures and metrics, if I wasn't so good at them, you know? Um, but that was my biggest coping mechanism, but because I was so good at that uncon, you know, subconsciously or unconsciously, whatever the phrase is, I never, I didn't have to, I never confront like, well, I'm not confronted. There wasn't, I didn't even think there was anything to confront, unfortunately. <laughs> like I, I mm-hmm. the point of even having access to self-awareness until the wake of the trauma. So I want to ask you something, and this is more of, I guess, I guess a personal opinion and not like professional advice that I'm like asking for, but how do you identify, how do you think that you can identify for the listeners, um, an abuser? 
Oh, uh, a few ways. And like, I'm glad you made that disclaimer because I'm definitely not a professional. I can only give anecdotal experience based on now several relationships that I believe that I've been in with multiple abusers. Um, not just the one, uh, I think one is, uh, anyone who, any, any behavior that's extreme, like even extreme generosity, extreme, uh, valid, like validating of, you know, Tanishri, you're amazing. I've never met anyone like you. And that can feel so intoxicating and addictive, but I, now for me, that's like a, a it's like a pretty much a red flag because I feel like, um, extreme things then also have tend to have like extreme highs and extreme lows. Um, so I look for, I look for that also in a personality, like in a person that if they, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, because I think that it's also like a means of control. Like if they can make you feel that good about yourself. um, And, and, and someone who makes you feel that good about yourself, it's very easy to get addicted to that feeling. Like in my brief three months, exactly. when they do it, like in an excessive way, yeah. like not, not saying that people shouldn't, your partner should make you feel good about yourself, you know, right. but right. No, when I was in that brief three month dating relationship, the first two weeks, like not like actually the first whole month and a half, I was like, Oh my God, I've never met anyone like this. Like I compared him to my brother who was an, who was like an actual saint in human form. And I realized, I mean, in hindsight, this person was mimicking like, many aspects of my personality. Like I, like he targeted me purposely because of my position in like the like uh, social scene. And I, I remember he, at one point I had gotten laid off again and he like sent me flowers and he really wanted me to come to this event, but I was like feeling so sad. And I had people coming in for Airbnb and he sent a cleaner to my house and it was all these like really generous things. And I thought, Oh my God, wow. He likes me so much. And, um, but it was, it was like a ploy, you know, like I think things, I feel like the things that are the healthiest are the things that happen in a more mild, like friendship oriented way. And you're right. It is about control because it, at one point in the middle of the brief three month dating relationship, there was a moment when it absolutely should have ended because all of his inner, like I, I, I know everyone doesn't think this word is appropriate, but I don't have a better word for it. Like his inner crazy came out (laughs) um, and like his inner psychotic came out, but he was able to manipulate me into like changing my understanding of it because I could not reconcile that one moment in time against the one and a half months that preceded it um, because he had uh, manipulated me and uh, so much to make me believe that that's, that's who he was. Uh, And then I want to expand on this. Um, for just a second, yeah. but just to make things a little bit clearer, like, cause I feel like it still sounds so like weird, like liquidy, wishy-washy kind of thing. I think that when people treat you like an, uh, I'm trying to find the words, <laughs> um, in this like extreme manner, when people are like on like extreme good behavior, it, it is control. Um, because one of the hallmarks of like an abusive person is that they want to feel needed. And so, yeah, it can be manipulative when they actually, um, are doing too much good right. stuff for you, um, at a time. Yeah. And I think what you said is really important. It should be like more of a friendship, um, coming more from like a friend, a place of love and friendship, um, than, them feeling like they need to be needed by right. you. And and one of the things I want to loop back to like our culture is that I think so many of us grew up feeling shitty at home. Like we felt we were never good enough. <laughs> we, no matter what we did, we could not be good enough. We could not be pleasing enough. We never performed to expectations. Like I was like a straight A student, but I still got compared to the straight A plus student. Like it was just never enough. Like I used to have other people's parents tell me like how amazing I was. And then, but I never used to get that validation. So I believe, unfortunately, that South Asian women in particular, who are also treated totally differently than South Asian men <laughs> that we are like not hashtag not all desperate for desperately seeking validation and we see it in these South Asian women's groups where so many women like they're writing these anonymous posts about like 12 very blatant red flag things in their relationship but they're like but I still want it to work you know like I love him and I'm not mocking them I swear like if any of those people are listening I'm not mocking you but my heart breaks my heart genuinely breaks for them because I'm like oh my gosh like they are they're me and like no matter what I say I can't convince these them necessarily otherwise until they they have to like suffer the suffering and hopefully learn the lesson and then not unlike me like I hope they don't rinse or repeat that thing over and over again but another thing just real quick about um, abusers I do want to mention is that anyone who isolates you from your 
friends or your family and feel threatened by those mm-hmm. friendships. Like, uh, and someone who wants to like cont- be the one who controls the narrative of, of your relationship. Like they're really obsessed with the appearances of, of things and how you appear. Like they're obsessed with your physical qualities. Um, you know, sometimes that can feel really feels good to like have someone tell you that your body is so amazing, or this is, you know, the most beautiful for you, the most beautiful person ever. But um, which again are things that we can become addicted to wanting to hear. But really, I mean, I wish that we could all <laughs> grow up uh, seeking some, seeking a partner who validates our self worth outside of our aesthetic and like who we are as people, what we want to be when we grow up, and like um, it's someone who's aligned with our actual real values. But I think if you actually talk to like eighty percent of South Asians, they wouldn't even be able to articulate their actual real values <laughs> because we're not we're not even like. Sometimes like with my mom, my own mom in present day, she finds my values, like my real values to be so problematic and burdensome. Very interesting point you just made. South Asians not knowing what their, their yeah. real no, values are. No, I don't are. think they do. I think if, I think it would be a really hard question. And if they were asked, they probably, they probably yeah. would not, you know, win the beauty pageant because they wouldn't be able to say what they, what uh, they value. Because what they what a lot of Desi people, even though they think they're so different than their parents' generation and their grandparents' generation, they unfortunately just value the same exact things that they were taught to value, which are status, position, wealth, what other people think. Yeah. Hopefully it's less so. I mean, I think that um, you know, the the platform that we are trying to create here targets more people who are more willing to be um divergent in their thought process. So maybe people listening can't relate as much to that. Uh, but I do think it's very prevalent. Like there's, there's way, way more people who, who do right. feel like I, I do feel don't. like you said, but we're stepping into this like awakening, right? There's so many amazing uh, forums and people who are, who are doing the work that you're doing or what I'm trying to do. And, and I, I really hope that we're coming to this like tipping point moment in our culture. But the one thing is that what I've noticed um, is I, or what I believe, not what I noticed, I believe that until like there is a, uh, like a, a massive wave of people who are willing to out loud in public say like, you know, me too, me too. <laughs> um, just these, these one-off conversations, they matter and they make people feel less alone. But until, um, uh, until there's like this, uh, I'm, I'm not able to access the word for it, but like until everyone knows that nearly everyone's living through it <laughs> uh, outside of safe spaces, it's not really going to change. Yeah, I think you're right. So I want to start wrapping up the episode, um, but any like final thoughts about this whole topic of deconditioning? And actually, mm-hmm. one last question for you. So we didn't know this stuff moving forward. Um, what about now? What what can we do for ourselves or for the younger generation? I think one of the most important things is for ourselves is I, it's very important for me now in life to have a friend who I have established a relationship in which they have to tell me like the obscene truth. Like I realized that I had friends who, if I was suffering, they were sad for me. If I was, uh, if I was sad, you know, they were sad. If I was mad, they were mad, but like no one ever asked, like no one ever challenged my way of thinking or uh, no one ever questioned my beliefs or, or anything. So I think it's really important to make sure <laughs> that you have an established friendship and trust with someone that you really work to establish that kind of relationship um, where someone will call you out on your bullshit and your and help you <laughs> become aware of some of your stuff. Uh, I know I would have greatly benefited from that growing up. Um, and I think, you know, for uh, for people for everyone it's going to look different like i always call it like the deep work right like my my deep work might look like i use this like health gadget thing that i call it's like one part meditation hypnosis and therapy for someone else it might be like actually going to therapy for someone else it might be writing but to actually start but getting uncomfortable like some of this stuff is really really painful and hard to confront but um so that we're not passing it on to the next generation of our children and grandchildren like we we have to do it and um i don't think that it requires everyone telling their story publicly i don't i don't think that at all but you you have to confront the reality of the story not the narrative that you've been made to believe is your story yeah not the not the the comfortable narrative i think um we find comfort 
Yes. And sadness, sadness can become oh, a habit. Really. It's like the most, com- I always say that my depression was my addiction. Like it was the the best friend I ever had. Yeah, it it was such a great crutch to life. Um, and sometimes like, <laughs> sometimes you miss it. Like, <laughs> because it, it just sometimes yeah. felt easier than having to show up all the time. Yeah, I agree. Um, so this is, I mean, we could we could talk for days about this topic, but I obviously need to start wrapping this up. But I wanted to ask you any last questions that I didn't ask you that you want to answer. Uh, I can't think of anything in particular. I just, I guess to the, especially the young people who are listening today, male or female or, or whatever um, you identify as, I... Just um, as like a big sister type kind of I'm self-assuming that role for a moment is this this sounds so hokey and cliched, but like this is your one and only freaking life. Um, You don't have to rinse, repeat the same things that you've been been doing that you've been programmed to believe. Um, And you also you don't owe your family, your parents anything like I know that's a really hard thing to confront as a South Asian. But I feel like so many South Asian lives are wasted, um, or not wasted, no one's life is a waste, but are really like are done such a disservice because they spend their entire lives trying to please their parents and never figure out how to please their like G dang self. They're like goddamn self. Sorry. <laughs> um, so that's, that, yeah, that would yeah. kind of be like my one point um, that I would want to make sure I communicated. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much. Um, and thank you so much for being on the show. Um, where can we find you? So I am in a few places. One is my blog, smitha, S-M-I-T-A, shares.com. Uh, I'm more active and like outspoken on my personal profile where I'm happy to have um, people follow me. It's uh, Smitha. Right now, it's kind of uh, a goofy name. It's going to change shortly. It's related to the DV situation, but it's Smitha Moon. Chand on Facebook. Um, you can find me there. And then I also have a public page, Smitha Shares. And um, if you're, you know, if you're ever, if anyone listening is ever interested in some of the stuff, like I talked about, I guess the, that mental health gadget, it's, for me, it's made such a 180 degree difference in my health. And it's one of the many things uh, that I share about that make my life better. But yeah, I'm happy to connect with people also like one-on-one. Um, so yeah, that's really it. Awesome. So um, I will put a bunch of those links in the episode description so people listening can get to you. And I'll obviously tag you on Instagram and stuff when I put this post up. So if you guys want to reach out, reach out to Smitha. You can also reach out to me at The Desi Condition on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you can also email me, the Desi Condition at gmail.com or tweet at me at TDC podcast underscore. Um, If you're listening on a platform in which you can leave ratings and reviews, please consider doing so and tell all your friends about this podcast and I will talk to you next time. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye.